From RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie. Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. We're fighting for humanity right now. Can we make some sense out of this? I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting. And what the president did night before last in that park was violent use of power. The only question I can really ask this week is, what is it like there at the moment, Brian? How is everyone feeling? It has been really tense, chaotic and an emotional couple of days. It has. I think what hit me was seeing the local area in which I live, which is quite close to Washington, D.C., seeing the buildings boarded up, the damage to property, the shattered windows. And I mean, that brings it home then because it's close to where you live. And then, of course, as a reporter, you're going down to the actual physical protests to cover them, too. And I was there outside the White House on the Monday evening when that action happened, whereby the police officers started to clear the protesters who were protesting peacefully outside the White House. We saw the smoke rise, I heard the bangs, I heard people shouting and running. And of course, that all brings it home as well, because you're there, you're Mm. witnessing it. And then, of course, we had that bizarre sequence of events where you had all the protesters cleared from in front of the White House. And I remember thinking at the time what was odd for me was that I knew there might have been some kind of a clear out at 7 p.m., which was the curfew time that was going to be enforced in Washington, D.C. that evening. But this was only 6.30, so I was a bit confused. Why are they moving everybody Mm. kind of 30 minutes early? And then we saw that sequence of events where Donald Trump walked out walked across the street, held up that Bible outside St. John's Church and spoke briefly to the cameras. We have a great country. That's my thoughts. It's coming back. It's coming back strong. It'll be greater than ever before. And uh, posed for photographs. And as I say, a bizarre sequence of events playing out and a very, very dramatic sequence of events. Yeah, before we go to that Bible holding outside the church, you know, these political rallies, being a reporter, you kind of can sense the emotional charge from it. I'm interested to hear what it was like there, that emotional charge, because you could certainly sense the realness from the St. Louis police commissioner when he was speaking to reporters after four of his officers were hit by gunfire during protests there. So some some coward fired shots at officers and, and now we have four in the hospital. But thankfully, and, and thank God, they're alive. They're alive. But I... I you, you, <laughs> Can we make some sense out of this? Can we make some sense out of this? That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think when you speak to the protesters, you get a better insight as to why they are out there and the level of anger. I spoke to one young African-American man called Walter, and he said, this was a problem in my parents' time, and it's a problem again, and we need to be heard. And he said, I am an American, and I am not being listened to. That was his sense, that he was just being ignored. Spoke to another young African-American woman, same thing, saying, I am 
years protesting here. My parents have protested as well. And I am not being listened to. I am not being heard. And then it's interesting to get different perspectives. I spoke to one man who, his name was Leroy, African-American young man. And we spoke about protesting. We spoke about what was going on. And then I said, what do you say to those acts of looting and breaking into buildings? And he said, well, actually, I can understand it. And he spoke about how the economy has been decimated. COVID-19 has resulted in 40 million people being unemployed. And he spoke about how people can't feed their children. They can't mm -hmm. get clothing for their children. And if they're the people breaking into a shop to rob food and to rob clothes, he said, I have no problem with that. And it was a stark reminder as well, and we've discussed this before on the podcast, that the African-American community has been disproportionately hit by COVID-19. And they have been disproportionately hit both in terms of their health and in terms of the economic impact when we see those huge, huge levels of unemployment. Yeah, and we saw as well, you know, tens of thousands of people on the streets of Houston, Texas, where George Floyd grew up and his death has really become a, a fresh symbol of racial injustice. And there's a clip of his daughter on the shoulders of a family member saying, Daddy changed the world. It was incredibly powerful. We're going to speak to one of the leading African-American politicians in the United States on the podcast soon. But before that, you know, we've been seeing those pictures of protesters and being cleared from the streets. And you've seen some of that, Brian. So the president could stand outside the church and hold the Bible. And the focus is on the president's reaction and response to all of this. Even a channel which is known to support the president, Fox News, took aim at him, including one of its key hosts, uh, Tucker Carlson. For people who like Donald Trump, who voted for Donald Trump, who support his policies, who have defended him for years and years against the most absurd kinds of slander, this was a distressing moment. The first requirement of leadership is that you watch over the people in your care. That's what soldiers want from their officers. It's what voters demand from their presidents. People will put up with almost anything if you do that. You can regularly say embarrassing things on television. All of that will be forgiven if you protect your people. But if you do not protect them, or worse than that, if you seem like you can't be bothered to protect them, then you're done. It's over. The focus is on religion too, and Donald Trump seems to be deepening his base rather than expanding it. Donald Trump, in a times of crisis, will return to the base. And it's all about the base, and he will look at, in this case, the conservative Christians that helped get him elected four years ago, and he needs them to vote for him again come November. And we saw this attachment and emphasis on religion. That church, St. John's Episcopal Church, is known as the President's Church because presidents frequently visit it. Donald Trump has, but not that often. He's not a regular churchgoer. But he chose to go there that night and to hold up the Bible. And actually, in the speech he gave beforehand, Jackie, he also referenced God and also spoke about protecting people's Second Amendment rights, their right to bear arms. So it was all aimed at the base, aimed at the support base. And that religious theme continued into the following day when Donald Trump and the First Lady Melania Trump visited a shrine to St. John Paul II in Washington, D.C. And then that evening, Donald Trump signed an executive order advancing religious freedoms. What I found interesting was that some of the church leaders here in Washington were not very supportive or not very happy of what he was doing and were quite critical, in fact. So the St. John's Church is an Episcopal church and the Episcopal Bishop of Washington said that Donald Trump was using the church and using the Bible as a prop for his own political means. And the Catholic Archbishop here 
was even more critical following that visit to that shrine to John Paul II, saying that it was reprehensible that any Catholic shrine would allow itself to be used in this way by Donald Trump for political ends. But he is clearly taking a calculated decision here to invoke the Bible, to invoke religion in the hopes that it will rally that base and keep him in the White House. As I said before, the death of George Floyd has you know, really become a fresh symbol of racial injustice. But this isn't the first killing this year of an unarmed black man or the first protests we have seen from people calling for better lives for African-Americans. Yes, and that is what is interesting as well. When you speak to the protesters on the ground, they will say George Floyd, but they won't say this is just about George Floyd. They say George Floyd was the tipping point. We didn't just lose George Floyd, as I've been saying. We lost his generations. We lost on that day his great-grandchildren, his great-great-grandchildren. We lost humanity on that day. And what we're doing right now in these protests, in these moments, as we risk ourselves in this pandemic, is fighting for humanity. We're fighting for humanity right now. And we're asking everyone all over the world to stand with us and fight with us. And that we have seen this time and time and time again. 1992 with the LA riots following Rodney King. Mm -hmm. We have seen this time and time again over the years here in the US. And it has to be said, for all the criticism of Donald Trump, we have seen it under President Obama, the two Bushes, Clinton. It is not a unique Trump situation here. The way he is handling it is quite unique, but the problem is not unique to his presidency. And yes, as you say, there's a pattern here. And it's more lives, it's Black Lives Matter. And that is the catch call, that is the banners, that is the t-shirts. And then the other rallying call being used right now is I can't breathe. The dying words of George Floyd as he lay on the ground while a police officer knelt on his neck for nine minutes. I can't breathe. And that's on all the t-shirts, that's on all the banners. And interestingly, Jackie, that is on the face masks that people are wearing. So it's a stark reminder of this combination and this coming together of the COVID-19 pandemic and this racial unrest we are having right now when you see people wearing those face masks written across the front, I can't breathe, and it's a very, very striking image. So it's not, unfortunately, a new phenomenon. We have seen... African-Americans dying at the hands of police many, many times before. This time seems different. The protests seem bigger. Is it COVID-19? Is it a case of enough is enough? And the big question is, why is this time different? Let's see if we can get some answers to those questions from Representative James Clyburn, who joins us on States of Mind now. You grew up in a segregated South Carolina and are now the longest serving member of the state's congressional delegation and the highest ranking black Democrat in the House. Did you ever think that you would still see these types of scenes highlighting racial injustice in the United States in 2020? No, I didn't. Uh, not uh, when I was going through all of this. I used to question whether or not what we were doing was the right thing to do or whether it made sense. But I always felt uh, that we were doing uh, things that, uh, so that our children and grandchildren uh, would not have to go through them. 
here we are, lo and behold, uh, my children and my grandchildren uh, seem to be having to live the same things that I lived. I've been looking at some statistics. One in three black men born in 2001 can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. African-Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate that is 5.1 times the imprisonment of whites. Can you, for everyone who lives outside of the United States, explain why the situation is so different for African-Americans? Well, because it's been different from the beginning. Uh, African-Americans did not come here escaping uh, from boundaries. We came here to be bound. Uh, so our history in this country uh, is just the opposite that of white Americans. People run away from poverty or running away uh, from uh, one form of government or another coming to this country seeking freedom. Black folks came to this country to be enslaved. And so that sets out the foundation upon which this whole country was built, with white people to be free and black people to be enslaved. Now, what we've been trying to do uh, over all of these years uh, is to uh, restructure that. And that's what I meant. And that's uh, when I was on the floor. And I'm sorry, I wasn't on the floor. I was uh, on a conference call with our caucus, and we were trying to put together the so-called CARES Act uh, to respond to this pandemic. And I said, this is an opportunity for us to restructure things uh, in our vision for this country, a vision of liberty and justice for all. That's this country's vision. It's there in our Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. With liberty and justice for all. Mitch McConnell goes to the floor of the Senate and make a mockery of my statement, calls me out by position. And, and then the right-wing media went to work all over social media, uh, calling me all kinds of names. Who am I to have a vision of liberty and justice for all? Uh, I tell, I've been telling people since I was a very young guy, I'm the hardest person in the world to intimidate. So I'm not going to be intimidated by that. I'm going to reinforce that every chance I get. But that's why. So everything has been structured to maintain white superiority, and some of, some people take it to white supremacy. Uh, and so that's the way it is, and that's what we've been fighting against. And that's what I mean when I say it's got to be restructured. Our judicial system has to be restructured so that we can get rid of those kind of statistics. Our educational system, it's got to be restructured. Our healthcare system. So you can take healthcare, you can take education, you can take the judicial system. It's all been structured to be against uh, uh, black folks. Congressman, I'm a journalist based here in the US. Uh, so I've been down talking to the protesters, listening to them. And what strikes me is lots of references to the economic impact and the economic impact of the coronavirus and people speaking about how people are suffering, people are hurting, as we know the coronavirus has disproportionately affected the African-American community here in the US. Do you think the current pandemic has almost added fuel to that fire and we've maybe lent itself to the fact that we've seen such strong and frequent protesting over the last week? 
Absolutely. In, in fact, remember, we were, that's what the CARES Act is all about. It was our response to this pandemic. And that's why I was saying what, what I said about it, because I knew uh, that the healthcare system, you know, this pandemic was about healthcare. Uh, the worst healthcare problem you've had in this country in over 100 years. And so what I was saying was, uh, we got to get this right. We just cannot uh, fund, uh, put all this money into a healthcare system as it is currently uh, constituted. It's got to be restructured. And, and I've been saying to people uh, that I really feel uh, that the real substance of all this is pretty old in this country. It's what Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about in his books back in the 1830s, Democracy in America. America is not great because it's more enlightened than any other nation, but rather because it's always been able to repair its faults. That's what the greatness of this country is all about. Abraham Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation was repairing the fault. Slavery was a fault that had to be repaired. And you can come down through history, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision to repair a fault. This great society programs of Lyndon Johnson, uh, putting in the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Higher Education Act, Elementary Secondary Education Act, all these things to repair faults. And so I was saying that now is the time for us to deal with what Martin Luther King Jr. talked about back in 1966 when he gave that speech, saying that of all of the inequalities in the world, injustice in healthcare is the most inhumane. And so I think that uh, that's what I was talking about. This is the time for us to deal with that in healthcare. So that's what this uh, coronavirus has revealed. Over the last week, we've seen scenes of rioting, looting, protesting, police heavy-handedness, very upsetting scenes. But within that, we have also seen moments where police officers dropped their batons and shields. They took a knee, they prayed, they marched, they supported. Do you see anything over the last week that gives you hope, that gives you optimism, that maybe things might change? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's when I... Uh, trying to say that people keep saying, well, what do you say to young people who said, you've done this, done that, and it hadn't worked? I said, just take a look. It has worked. Look at Medicare, a very successful program. That was a great society program. Medicaid, a great society program. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, a great society program. All these things I just listed. Uh, under Lyndon Johnson, they were part of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program. They did not fail. They still exist today. Sometimes renamed. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act, when George W. Bush came along, the act was still there. He renamed it, Leave No Child Left Behind. It's the same law with a new name. So these Great Society programs did work, and they are still working. And so we can't let uh, the opponents uh, make us play their game. Violence that's taking place on the streets now, that's not the protesters. If it were just the protesters, why didn't we have violence after Walter Scott was shot in the back down in North Charleston? Or while those nine post souls shot in Bible study 
all of five years ago. On the June 17th, we're going to be uh, commemorating the 15th anniversary, the fifth anniversary of that. We didn't have any violence. No. The communities came together to do something to make it right. So all this violence you see out there now, that's not the Floyd family. You've seen them on TV saying to people, we don't want to, that's not us. That's not what we want. <clears throat> so that's where we are. There are always going to be uh, uh, segments out there looking to take advantage of a situation. And I say about violence, is the unjust use of force or power. And what the president did night before last in that park was violent use of power. That's what it was. It was a violent act on the part of the president of the United States, just as violent as somebody who would throw a brick through a store window. Donald Trump, Donald Trump tweeted yesterday that his administration has done more for the black community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. What do you make of that? With each passing day, his lies get bigger and bigger and bigger. This guy has no relationship with the truth. I said to someone uh, the other day, they're standing in front of a church with a Bible in his hand uh, shows to me that he has no more relationship uh, with religion uh, than he has with the truth. Uh, the truth and Donald Trump do not operate uh, within the same sphere. He's made comments about race over the past couple of years while he's been in office. Do you think they've had an effect on the ground? Um, have you say, seen things change as a result of those comments? Well, I think that uh, what Donald Trump has been able to take advantage of uh, is, is the whole social social media thrust. <clears throat> a lot of people have used the social media to hide. And he's done a good job of that. And a lot of people use social media just to feel good. And I think it makes him feel good uh, when he uh, uses the media to pit people against each other. If all you want out of life is to feel good for the moment, then maybe you'll just be a disciple of Donald Trump. But if you want out of life to pass along to your children and your grandchildren a better country to live in, a better world to live in, then you would reject Donald Trump. I've said to people that I cannot square my experiences with support for Donald Trump. And the extent to those experiences of mine have been dictated by my skin color, uh, that tells you I cannot square my blackness with support for Donald Trump. 
Congressman, someone who you very much have supported is Joe Biden. And it was your endorsement in South Carolina that helped swing the primary for him there. That helped reignite his campaign, which was in trouble and really propelled him to the position he's now in. But Joe Biden landed himself in hot water recently while he was on a talk show and he said to an African-American presenter, if you're thinking of voting for Donald Trump, you ain't black. What did you make of those comments? Well, I said at the time that when he said it, I cringed because I knew what he meant. And he meant exactly what I just finished saying, that my black experiences would not allow me to support anybody who could look in a camera and call a black woman a dog. That's what Donald Trump did. I have three black daughters and I know how I would feel if the president of the United States would refer to one of them as a dog. Now, somebody else may be able to square their blackness with that. I can't. So I knew what he meant, but I knew uh, that the way he said it would be weaponized against him. He said it jokingly. And that's one of the things we have to be careful about in this business. Uh, uh, the media, the social media, uh, won't let you get away with making a joke anymore. Uh, and so uh, Biden has is getting used to this new world, just like I'm getting used to it. Uh, so that I knew what he meant, and he meant no harm uh, by that. And I understand that the, the gentleman that he was talking to, who, by the way, uh, is from uh, South Carolina, uh, a from the same little town, Monk's Corner, that my wife is from. I understand he was on uh, TV uh, right after I was on yesterday, uh, expressing uh, a certain amount of understanding uh, of what um, uh, Joe Biden meant. But, you know, disinterested people or people who are trying to flame uh, or fan flames, uh, they'll weaponize those terms and words. But Congressman, is there a danger from Joe Biden's perspective that he has this almost assumption that he has the black vote in the bag? Is that dangerous? Should he not have to work for it? Should he have to earn it? And what should he do over the next five months before the next election to ensure that he can secure the African-American vote? Well, I would like to say that he's earned that vote over the years. Yes, he still has to stay engaged with the black community. But I accept service on the fact that people uh, uh, gave me credit uh, for um, uh, reigniting the Biden campaign. But the fact of the matter in the reservoir of goodwill for Joe Biden among black people was there. Uh, th th that's what I ignited that. I didn't have to go out and build a Joe Biden. Joe Biden uh, had that reservoir sitting there. He always knew he had it there. The problem was the black community had not been energized. Uh, it needed to be ignited. Uh, and that's all I did was to say uh, to the black community, you know, I know Joe Biden and you know Joe Biden. But don't forget that most importantly, Joe Biden knows us. He's demonstrated that over the years. How does Joe Biden's leading vice presidential contenders now stack up in the wake of these protests over George Floyd's deaths like Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar? 
Well, those are three uh, of the women that are being considered. Uh, I think Michelle Lujan, uh, she, she's being vetted, the mayor, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the governor uh, of New Mexico. I think she's an outstanding person. I've served with her. Uh, I serve, I know uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, I know Stacey Abrams. They're all uh, being mentioned. I understand about uh, 12 people being mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now, I suspect uh, that um, uh, two or three of them are being mentioned more than others. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just think that um, Elizabeth Vaughn, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, two outstanding uh, uh, women. Uh, I just believe, and I've said this, that I have a great deal of admiration and respect for Amy Klobuchar, but uh, I've said, and I think, it's a fact uh, that these circumstances in Minneapolis, over which she had absolutely no control, it would have been ill-timed uh, for her uh, when it comes to this consideration. It, it's just that simple. And that's, it's unfair. That's because she was a prosecutor. Uh, I'm sorry? In, that, that's because she was a prosecutor in Minnesota's largest county. Um, and, and she promised on several occasions to kind of crack down on, on crime in the state. Is, is that right? Well, uh, I'm just saying that she, the system, all the stuff that's coming out, and it cannot be helpful when you have the state of Minnesota bringing a lawsuit against uh, the um, police department in Minneapolis. That's a huge deal. But that's the same... Uh, people uh, that she interacted with uh, as a prosecutor. So the, the, all of this is of such, uh, once again, it's unfair, but timing. Uh, this is something that if it happened next year is one thing, but being for the, all this to happen as she's under consideration, that is going to be a problem. What do politicians from both sides of the political divide need to do now to unite the country, Congressman? Well, you know, you can't solve a problem if you don't admit that it exists. The first thing we've got to do is admit that there's a problem that we've got to solve. What has happened in this country all too often is the whole concept of benign neglect. Just pretend it doesn't exist. And that's what's been going on in this country uh, for the last 20 years, pretending that we did not have a problem, pretending that all we need to do was to elect an African-American president, and that would take us beyond race in this country. That is a pretense for other things that people are beginning to see now. We've got to admit that there's a structural problem when it comes to race in this country, a structural problem. And all you got to do is analyze some of these laws that we have passed. What happened when these state legislatures uh, following this group called Allen? A-L-E-C, funded by the Koch brothers. 
massive funding in this group that went around the country lobbying legislatures, passing these so-called stand your ground laws. Those laws unleashed vigilantes on people of color in this country. You can make anything legal and that's what they did. That those laws, stand your ground laws, have made vigilantism legal in this country. That's what we got to do. We got to sit down and say, "This, I don't care what the what your intentions were. These are the consequences." Trayvon Martin lost his life because of vigilante activities. Aubrey, the young man Aubrey down in Georgia, being tracked down by two trucks and three men, vigilante, bandishing guns. We've passed these laws all over this country called open carry. Just a show of force. We've seen uh, so-called people funded by the right wing uh, camping out uh, in Michigan, going in the State House of Michigan with carrying, banishing guns, all kinds of weapons because they got a law. That's what we've done in this country. We've created a climate of unrest. We've created a climate of vigilantism. That's what is going on here. And so it's time for state legislatures, as well as the United States Congress, to admit that we've done some things that's now gotta be undone if we want this country to survive for the next generation. With all of this happening, the unrest on the streets, the demand for justice, the push and pull between some demonstrators and those in authority, and a massive conversation happening surrounding racial inequality in the United States, the strong current of COVID-19 is still running through all of this as states continue to reopen and emerge from what has happened so far this year. And people are starting to reflect on that too. And that's something that we're going to look at next week. Yeah, I think it's worth looking back, particularly now as things start to reopen. Interestingly, here in Washington, that reopening, quite sad for many businesses, because here in Washington, D.C., it was just last weekend they started to ease the coronavirus lockdown restrictions. So businesses were allowed to start reopening again. But then the looting and the rioting started and many businesses had to close up and board up the windows. So you literally had some shops and places that had been boarded up and had been closed up because of coronavirus. They were just given permission to start to reopen again, but then they had to close all over again and put the the boards back up. But yes, we're going to take a look at that next week and also a revisit to some people we've spoken to on the ground in the epicentre of all of this, which of course in the US is New York. Absolutely. From the front line. Chat to you then, Brian. Chat to you next week. Thanks, Jackie. 